When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go paper-tarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Car Stuff. I'm Scott Benjamin. And I'm Ben Bolin. Ben, we've got a topic today that I'm so excited to talk about. This is this is a really, really cool one. This is a heart-stopping topic, and we're going to go ahead and let you guys know that we're going to do something a little bit uh, multimedia, aren't we, Scott? Yeah, you may be in for, for a treat in this episode, because we may uh, try to get some audio clips in here that'll... Add a little bit of excitement to what we do, and uh, and as always, you know, we're going to encourage you to go to uh, maybe to our blog. I don't mm-hmm. know where we're going to post these, but we're yeah. going to post the videos as well that go along with all of these moments that we're going to talk about today because there's some fantastic, fantastically exciting moments that uh, that happen um, in motorsports, as you know, and uh, we've got just a few of them here. I mean, there there could be literally thousands of these thousands yeah but uh we've we've kind of gathered what about eight or nine of these mm-hmm, things maybe mm-hmm. i think um that we find particularly exciting particularly interesting and they all revolve around the final lap of a race we wanted we talked about this before we went on air right scott we didn't want to call it the best last laps yeah that's right it's well, uh just exciting thing right? yeah things that that we really enjoy and we hope that you guys will enjoy them too now that being said, these are just auto races. These, these are no, uh, they're no motorcycle races. There are no famous last yacht laps or anything. No, no, <laughs> nothing like that in this one. It's just auto racing. And, and as a fact, we've, as a matter of fact, we've got, um, a little bit of, not everything. We've got IndyCar. We've got NASCAR. Mm-hmm. We've got a little bit of Formula One in there. Yeah, the and, Spanish uh, Grand Prix. Yeah, I think that's about it, really. I mean, just yeah. those three series, really. But, um, I'll tell you, that's more than enough to talk about right now. I know that there's, a, like I said, there's a million of these out there. Mm-hmm. And you gotta remember, it's not just a moment in a race that happens because there's, again, another million moments like that. Yes. These are focused on strictly the last lap, like maybe what happened right up to that point. Mm-hmm. But the last lap is really critical in the in the uh, the way the whole race ended up. And um, before guess, we get started. Yeah, before we get started, I do have to make one correction to something that we talked about uh, not long ago. Okay. Um, we, we had a uh, story on the Corvair. If you recall, yes, sir, and uh, that's actually getting quite a bit of response. A lot of good response, mm-hmm. a lot of positive response. But the uh, the person that uh, that suggested this originally, I think his name is Joel. Uh, what is it? Rush, Rushworth. Rushworth. That's right. Yeah. Um, he wrote back to us on Facebook, 
Mm-hmm. And uh, first of all, he said, you know, I, I was kind of watching this as it happened. He said, well, I'm watching, I'm listening to the episode, great job, you know. And then there's another comment like, eh, not bad, but I've got one little comment here. So yeah. I think I figured I'd just uh, go ahead and mention this and just get it out there that there was a correction uh, from Joel. Mm-hmm. And thanks, Joel, for, for catching this. I appreciate it. Um, in that episode, we mentioned a, uh, a collapsible steering column versus a, uh, oh, actually, we mentioned a telescoping mm-hmm. steering column. That's what we said. And what really what we were talking about or what we meant to to describe was a collapsible steering column. And that's what we meant. Now, I don't know how that's going to play into I haven't even listened back to this, but because <laughs> we just got this correction. But um, I, I don't I'm not sure how this plays into our research on this, because I, I mentioned that the Futura, I think, was it the Ford Futura? Yes. Had the collapsible. Ste- I said the collapsible steering column. Possibly that one had a telescoping steering column. I'm just not sure. I mean, or no, I'm I'm sorry. It was the Ford Thunderbird that we mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah, it was yeah, the, the Thunderbird, 50, 55 Thunderbird, right? Um, and you know, I think we mentioned the Cadillacs later on. Now it's not the same thing. Now a telescoping column, as Joel points out, is one that um, can move forward and backward. And that's for dri- just strictly for um, driver uh, comfort, right? I mean, it's right. it. You know, how far out you have to stick your hand to grab the wheel. Yeah, they're adjustable by the driver, but they still, as Joel said, lock and become rigid. Yeah, that's and that's the critical point there is they become rigid and it just becomes, again, one solid steering column all the way up to the steering box up in the front. Now, um, you know, collapsible, the collapsible is more for safety. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they, I want to say something like um, Ford, I want to say. Okay. Had a, I'm going to have to, boy, I wish I had a, a better note on this here, but um, I think that early on, someone had a, uh, a collapsible steering wheel ah, that will, it was just okay. like a, a splined wheel that was able to drop back. That's not the same thing. Now, a, a completely collapsible column, that's completely different. That's one where it has a joint in the middle that allows mm-hmm. it to break free. It doesn't become one like a spear almost, really, that can come into the the, uh, the cabin. Um, so collapsible is for safety. Um, and by 1968, I think, is what uh, is the way Joel put it. And I, I did look this up. 1968 is when all cars in the United States, including the Corvair, yeah. um, had to be equipped with them. That was the federal mandate. So, Right. And you said, uh, and as you said, if um, people check out our Facebook page, Car Stuff HSW, they can see that conversation. Now, Scott... Buddy, I'm not going to leave you out in the cold here on this because I had a correction for something that I said from a listener named John who wrote to us with an email. And I wanted to address this on air because I think you made a really great point. Uh, John mentions, uh, and he did like this podcast, he said, don't forget that the tire pressures recommended were for bias ply tires. Bias ply tires are bad handling to begin with. A Corvair on radials will handle very well. So newer tire technology. Right, and that's a good point because when I had those uh, original stats for the tire pressure, I did not mention the kind of tire, and that needed to be clarified. So I wanted to say uh, thank you to John and thank you to Joel. And now that we have clarified some of that stuff. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. Fair and, enough. Um, now, we do need to kind of lead into this a little bit. Right, some context for our last laps. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I want to say that, you know, we, we said that it's the last lap. It's not a moment in the race or whatever. We've already covered all that. Right. It's. I would say that a lot of these are going to be controversial in some way because there's something that happens 
in that last lap that someone says, oh, he's blocking and that's why this happened, this wreck happened. Or, oh, yeah, you know, there's gonna be There's going to be a lot of that. There's always, yeah, you're right, two sides to every story. Um, so, so think to yourself as you listen to these or as you watch these on your own, mm-hmm. um, was it dangerous? Was it foolish? I mean, was it like a, it's often called a heroic move or is it, is it called irresponsible? It right. kind of depends on the, uh, on the take you, you, you know, the way you see it really. And a lot of times it depends on, uh, which racer you're a bigger fan of. Let's be honest. People do have some bias here. <laughs> yeah, I think you're exactly right. And I mean, it's, it's always, and, and what we're looking at is we're looking at all or nothing finishes. I mean, they're going to leave everything out on the track because mm-hmm. at this point, you know, they've, they've raced the full, uh, 499 and a half miles and this is the last half mile of the 500 race. Yeah. Or, um, you know, or similar. And, uh, you know, there's, at this point, it's all or nothing. And the announcers in these things, that's what, that's one thing that we're going to have a tough time ourselves conveying. Hopefully when the listeners, uh, listen to this on their own or watch these on their own, yeah. they'll get the point that, you know, the, the, the announcers make such a dramatic difference in this. If you were to just watch the clip alone, you on know, with, mute or something. Yeah, on mute. Yeah. Not nearly as exciting. Now, a lot of these guys, they just lose their minds at this point because, you know, they, they're, they're <laughs> as caught up into the whole thing as everybody else. I mean, there's a lot of adrenaline. There's excitement. Sure. Um, there's just so much going on on the track at one time that they can't get it all out at once. You know, people are watching different points. Um, it, it, a great announcer truly makes the race, I think, in my opinion. That's just something mm-hmm. that uh, it, you can't get around. And there's always... You know, a lot of drama leading up to the last lap. You know, it's like it's uh, there's always a moment like now, especially watching IndyCar. Yeah. Um, is there enough fuel? There's a, a huge fuel strategy going on at the end of the race. And you'll hear announcers talk about that, too, especially in a couple of these that we mentioned, because when you get to the point of the last lap and your fuel calculation is telling you that you might be at the bottom of the barrel. Yeah, you may not have enough for, you may have enough for, you know, the uh, 199 and a half of the 200 laps. Oh, what is that like? That really does happen, and it happens often, and they have different gearings, as we'll find out, that they can select to, to decide, you know, if they're going to be in fuel economy mode or, like, full race mode, and it makes a huge difference at the end of the race. And and I can't tell you, Ben, how many times I've seen an IndyCar coasting on the last lap as you know, positions two, three, four past the leader. Yeah. Uh, the former leader, I should say. Ooh, it's so gotta be, it's it, gotta be a certain it, sort of bitterness. It happens. I mean, and people get desperate. There's sometimes crashes. There's, mm-hmm. it's, it's always emotional in some way. So let's, uh, dive in, huh? Yeah, let's just jump right in and I'll, I'll do my best to, you know, convey some of the excitement of this. But what we're gonna do is just set up the, uh, set up what's going on really. Yeah. So I think the first one is, uh, you have to look at the 19, 19- 96 cart series um, at Laguna Seca, and this one is just simply called the Pass. Yes, the uh, I call it the infamous Pass. Now, of course, we're going to be moving around in time here, so 1996 is not going to be the earliest thing we talk about. Mm-hmm. But in this Pass, uh, Alex Zanardi passes the racer Brian Herta. Yeah, but not just any Pass. No. This is a this is a last lap pass in the uh, in of course you know Laguna Seca that's a difficult track to pass on anyways it's an eleven turn track mm-hmm. that has uh, it's like two and a quarter miles long I think um, extremely difficult to pass in a lot of different there's just a few places where you can easily but uh, of all places for him to choose to pass now he chooses to pass in the corkscrew turn which is one of the most dangerous parts of the track when you're just driving. Absolutely. Now, now no one expected this. You know, of course there's a there's a few different uh um you know, well Zanardi had the the uh, pole position for the day. 
Yes. And this is his rookie year, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, 1996. So Alex Zanardi, who, you know, there's a lot going on with his racing career. You need to look into that. Um, but Paul Page is an announcer. There's a lot in which leads to lends to this huge. Okay. Sidebar. First sidebar. Side, first sidebar of the whole thing. Yeah. Get this. I, when I lived in Indianapolis, and I've mentioned this many times, I've lived there, and that's why I'm so infatuated with the Indy 500, right? Uh-huh. Paul Page, the announcer of the Indy 500, and you recognize his voice instantly if you ever watch any race at all. Yeah. His brother was my gym teacher. And, uh, yeah, yeah, it was really strange. It's just a weird connection. And, uh, when I was in elementary school, his brother was my gym teacher right there in Indianapolis. Did you get any hookups? I did not. You know, and I was really young at the time. My dad worked for a network that was covering the Indy 500 and he would, you know, direct the practice sessions and, you know, the time trials and things like that. Oh, wow. So we got to meet Paul also. But, um, you know, to, to his brother, and I wish I could remember his name now. I just don't remember his brother's name. But it was interesting connection, I thought. So okay. here's something interesting about this. Sure. I, I want to point out that Zanardi, had he done this more recently, would have been penalized, wouldn't he? Yeah, I think you're probably right. Now, he did go – he went two wheels off the track at some point. Uh-huh. Um, at, you know, But to, for four wheels to go off the track, I think that would have – I think that would have disqualified him because he gained a position in doing so. Mm-hmm. But um, the, the pass, I mean, you just absolutely have to see it in order to even believe it. Now, what makes this one so exciting for me, not only where it happened and and how it happened. you know, And the, and the fact that he, I, for a minute, it looks like he's not going to break. No, it sure doesn't. It looks like he's going to spear right into the side of Herta. But, um, in fact, he makes it a very, very skilled move, I'll tell you that. Now, yeah. again, this is one, is it heroic? Was it stupid? Yeah, I don't know. I'll leave that up to you because there's a lot of debate either way. I think it was a pretty darn bold move. I mean, it was really, really brave of him to do this, I, I guess. I mean, it's precision driving. It there's really, no doubt about it. It really is in lots of control. But what's really cool is that the announcers, they're just kind of going on. Now, this is the last lap, and it's getting close to the end because this is like turn 8 and 8A is mm-hmm. what the corkscrew is considered out of 11, I believe. And uh, they're not really expecting anything to happen at this point. So when you're watching the clip as they're talking – you know, they're, they're like, they're, it's kind of like the end of the race wrap up almost. Like, oh, this has been a great, great race. And, you know, who's going, you know, we, we've seen a lot of changes, et cetera. And then it's almost like no one can believe it. They're like, oh, look at this, look at this, you know, yeah. and they get real excited. And it's, it's really, really cool. It's just a, and at that point, you know, it's like you get the, uh, the adrenaline rush in your, in your body and like the, the, the hair on your arm stand up, you know? Well, let's, let's play a little clip of it real quick, just so our listeners can get the sense of what's happening here. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees. 
a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. So now you get the, you know, your feel for some of the excitement of, of you know, around that moment, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, normally it's not seen as a passing opportunity. So, you know, that's what makes this one so unusual. It's just such a, it's such a, a bold and daring place to make this move. And uh, by the way, Jimmy Vassar, who finished fourth on that day, uh-huh. he ended up winning the driver's championship for that year, uh, for 1996. But, you know, it was completely lost in the news, you know, like, uh, like the, the big news was this pass. Oh, yeah, it was sort of uh, the page three headline then because of the pass. Yeah, exactly. Now, those sorts of passes are attempted far more often than they are successfully completed. That's another thing about this. Right? That's true. Yeah, yeah. It's often, uh, it's often you know, the way it ends up the other way and that both cars end up in a pile of, you know, rubble off on, off on the side yeah, of the track. Unfortunately. And, and position number three ends up taking the victory. Now, we said we're going to jump around in time a little bit. Where do you want to go next, Scott? How about a race where the, that exactly happened? Uh, because, uh, you know, this is one that, uh, I think we've, we've mentioned this one on our Facebook page. Yeah, we have. I know that, uh, when this year's Daytona 500 is coming up, I, I pointed it out as one of my favorite moments in, well, in NASCAR racing history, really. Um, this is the infamous fist fight at the 1979 Daytona 500. Yep. This is the moment where, uh, Cale Yarbrough and Donnie Allison, depending on who tells you the story, <laughs> We're just going to tell you the facts, okay? First, I think, just to be fair, Scott, we should just say the objective facts. Sure. Both of these vehicles end up wiped on the infield. That's right. And that is only the beginning of their story. Yeah, that's right. And there's actually three members involved in this race. Oh, you're wanna, right. If yeah. you want to get down yeah. to it, um, uh, Bobby Allison, who is uh, Donnie Allison's brother, also gets into this fight. Now, I think he is the one who was in, initially struck with Kale's helmet when Kale threw his helmet. Right, and let's keep in mind, this is the final lap. This is not just the final lap. This is turn three of the final lap. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, it's a really difficult race, you know, throughout the whole day. Now, this is 1979. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to point out again, and I, as I did in Facebook a long time ago, that um, this was the, the first 500-mile race 
broadcast in its entirety live on television. Stand and, to stern. Uh, so it's a big deal for NASCAR. This is a huge event. Now, to get a lot of people watching, you know, they, they were, you know, Hoping to get a lot of people watching, mm-hmm. I should say, and uh, and a lot of people think that this fight at the at the end of the race made all the difference in the world. They think it it instantly made a lot of NASCAR fans. Oh, ratings wise, yeah, yeah, and, and and you know brought people back again and said, I want to see NASCAR on television every weekend from now on because if this is the way they're going to ra- race and this is the way it's going to be, I need to see that. Now I'll paraphrase a cousin of mine. I'm not going to identify <laughs> him. Or her, okay, but him. Uh, I'll paraphrase so and keep him anonymous so I don't embarrass him. But he he likes to point out that one of his favorite things about, as he calls it, the old races is that you never know what's going to happen. Okay, and he and uh, I think this is a prime example. Now we should say that on turn three, this is a sort of cursory description of how it happens. I think Donnie's in the lead, right? I believe yes, that's Donnie right. is in front of Kale, mm-hmm. and so Kale is edging up to make a pass attempt on the backstretch yeah on the backstretch mm-hmm. and as the regulations right state now at mm-hmm. least there's a minimum amount of space that the person being passed must grant yeah. the person attempting to pass if there's an attempted pass you need to grant at least one car width one car width i believe between that and the inside line which would be the the white line on the on the track not necessarily the uh, the grass or mud mm-hmm. which was in this in this case it was mud in the infield of daytona yeah. which it's, it's kind of hard to imagine now but uh, it was that way if you use paper you're a human but if you choose paper you're a papertarian someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet and also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy. And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh, great, you see me too. We'll laugh together. We'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals. 
Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So, Kale is making the attempt, and Donnie Allison is... I guess asserting his let's, position. Let, let's just say it, Ben. He was blocking. He's he was blocking, blocking, and it happens. And it happens. This is closed wheel racing or covered wheel racing, and mm-hmm. that it's not open wheel like in an Indy car. Um, so there is a bit of bumping that happens, and you know it yeah. doesn't. It doesn't have the disastrous consequences like uh, like open wheel does, where they launch That's each a good other, point, right? Scott. Yeah. So there's bumping, and let me tell you that bumping. That's severe. I mean, when you watch that, can you believe that they were even able to keep the car straight after that? As I mean, long as they did, amazing. Yeah, yeah when they you... they are. It's like an action movie uh, car chase because they're grinding their cars at each other at one point and just skidding off of each other several yeah. times. I mean, they they make contact two or three times. I'd say three times. Yeah. Um, finally. Uh, you know, one car, Kale's car just noses right into Donnie's car. They both ride up the track and into the wall in turn three. Yep. And uh, as you can imagine, that puts them both out. They both slide back down the track and, you know, they end up in the infield mm-hmm. in turn three. Meanwhile, uh, guess R- who, guess who passes them? Richard Petty. Yeah, that's right. Passes. Yeah, Richard Petty. And, and what's kind of interesting about this is Petty almost doesn't win the race. Um, <laughs> if you watch the rest of the clip, uh, you'll find that Daryl Waltrip almost pe- passes Richard Petty just before the finish line, but you know he gets the victory mm-hmm. narrowly. Um, and and just at that moment, that's right when you know the uh, the checkered flags flying. You know, there's all this excitement, and you know, there's like I can't believe what a great race this has been. You know, and, yeah. the, and the wreck happened. And, you know, that they think that's it, and then suddenly, you know, one of the announcers picks up with, uh, "It appears we may have a fist fight." Let's yeah. just play the clip. Appears we may have a fist fight. We see drivers and helmets, safety officials trying to jump in there and separate them as tempers have really flared after this amazing incident on the final lap coming into turn number three. As you could tell, if you could tell by that description there, the guys are still wearing their helmets for a minute and they are wailing on each other. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, you know, the Allison brothers, uh, mm-hmm. well, uh, Donnie, Donnie and Bobby. Donnie and Bobby. Yeah, they, they, uh, they had had a little. I guess altercation with uh, with Kale earlier in the day. I suppose now I don't know which one it was. I don't know if it was uh, Donnie or if it was um, if it was Bobby who uh, who spun out early in the day with Carol Kale. I'm not yeah. sure about that. I just I think the it tension was, was building. I want to say it was Donnie, but uh, but at the end of the race, now what happened? How how Bobby got involved in all in this mm-hmm. in this fist fight at the end was that he pulled up into turn three. To pick up his brother after the race, just to say, do you need to ride back to the pits? <laughs> and uh, and somehow, you know, he hears Kale yelling at him, you know, and, and he gets involved in this, or he he's tried not to get involved, according to him, right. and uh, just kind of got wrapped up in the whole thing. And here's something that some race fans might enjoy if you haven't checked out the story of the infamous 1979 Daytona 500 fight. You can see both Kale Yarbrough and Donnie Allison much later in life, and they still disagree on who was at fault. Yeah, I don't know when that clip is from, but uh, there's still, you can tell there's still some, some animosity. Anger. There's a bit sure. of anger there, yeah. yeah. And you know what, Ben, I need to say this too before we wrap up this one, because uh, we've got another one coming up, an F1 story we're coming up to. Mm-hmm. Um, Donnie Allison, he, he claims that, that Kale ran into the back of his car and that he wasn't trying to run him off the track or any of that stuff, right? Right. Now, there was a NASCAR appeal, apparently, 
Um, and but I, I found out that uh, Allison and Yarborough were both fined eighty thousand dollars and put on probation after wow. that. Now, I mean, that was a big deal to them, you know, NASCAR, because mm. they didn't want that, you know, to tarnish their reputation. They thought, oh my, what a mistake! Right, you know, NASCAR we, carefully manages its public reputation. Well, even in nineteen seventy nine, NASCAR was thinking. Oh no, we're on television and <laughs> here's our guys. They're acting like, you know, a couple of fools out in the right. track, you know, they're fighting. Acting, they're when they, wrestling or but what NASCAR didn't realize was that's what people wanted. They, they loved that. They were, they were mm-hmm. so excited to see that happen. So anyways, it's an interesting uh, footnote, I guess, is that, you know, the, this huge fine, $80,000 in 1979. Can you imagine how big that was? It's a lot of money. Wow. Yeah. yeah so, all right. Even for, even for racing, you know, it reminds me a little bit of the Jocko Flacco story because, of course, uh, racing authorities don't want somebody to do something crazy like get into a fist fight or mm-hmm. hop in the car with a monkey mascot. Mm-hmm. But when they did, it turns out that the public really enjoyed it. Yeah, it could go one of two ways and it happened to, uh, happened to sway in their favor. Right. And of course, we are not in any way suggesting this fight was staged. This is clearly an instance where two very competitive people have a different differing view of the opinion or of the events, you know. I mean, oh, sure. One of two sides. That's right. Right. And so, uh, pick your side. So it's the 2001 Spanish Grand Prix mm-hmm. and it's in Barcelona, Spain. Now, Mika Hakkinen at the time, if you remember, he was a he was a well, really good F1 yeah. driver. And now at that point in 2001, I don't know if he was he wasn't really at his peak. Because I think it was like 98, 99 when he was really winning a lot of races. And he had three successive wins before this, yeah. at this track. And, you know, outright before that, in 98, 99, he had like the driver's championship. So mm. he was, you know, he's consistently winning races a lot. And you mentioned, you know, the three wins. He had won in 98, 99, 2000, and here we are in 2001. And we're talking at this same event. Now, he yeah. had won... He had won the Spanish Grand Prix three times in a row. This is going to be number four for him. So it's a big deal, right? And until the until the final lap, everybody thought it was going to be the fourth win. Yeah, I mean, he had won. He had led. Now, get this. He had only led like 26 out of the 65 laps that were run that day, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, now, the, again, would have been his fourth win. All he had to do, he was in the lead on the last lap. Oh, yeah. You have one job at this point, sir. Yeah. And this happens often. All he had to do was hang on to his, his lead. And you would think this would be super simple because the second place driver, who was, happened to be Michael Schumacher in his Ferrari, mm-hmm. was way behind because he had a uh, mechanical failure. He had a, um, he had some kind of engine, or not engine, but just a vibration happening. Right. That yeah. kept him running at a slower pace, kept him off the, the, uh, the main lap even. For some amount of time, and uh, and then even farther beyond that was Juan Montoya, who was in a, I think a Williams BMW, and he was even farther back. So so Mika's way way out in front. All he's got to do is just drive one lap flawlessly, right? Just one final lap, nothing, no problems, yeah. right? No big problems. But now, as he starts his fourth lap, just as he starts the fourth lap, a few seconds into it, now he he himself made no mistakes. Let's just put that out there. That's a really good point. This was not his fault. This really wasn't his fault. There's a mechanical failure. But almost right away, one of the announcers says, "I hear his car rattling" or something like that. I heard it rattle on that on that pass. Um, and then suddenly there's smoke billowing out of the back of Mika's car, and his engine is gone. Yeah, his engine. You thought it was an engine. Turns out it was his clutch. Uh, he had a hydraulic failure. That, that blew his clutch, which eventually led to other issues. And, you know, there's just, he ended, he ended up dropping out on his final lap. But, uh, but 
the weird part is like before all this happened, they're saying, you know, there's all this drama and excitement because he's on his final lap Mm -hmm. seconds into it. It's, I don't know how many miles his course is, you know, a few maybe, um, as he's driving and starting to slow down, that's when Michael Schumacher starts to catch up from behind. And still at this reduced speed. Everybody. At reduced speed, which is exciting. See, this is where all the excitement it's the comes. Tortoise like, in the hair, it's like, can he hang on to it? Can he, you know, can he hang on to this mm-hmm. final lap? Does he have enough left in the, in, you know, in the engine to make it to, to the checkered flag? That's all he has to do is just limp across the line while Schumacher's steadily gaining at reduced speed. Mm-hmm. Now, Juan Montoya, he's so far back, it doesn't matter at this point, right? Yeah. Um, but later, you know, you'll find out that, uh, uh just, you know, not long after that, you know, Mika has to just give it up and, and pass. But and and mm. just seconds later, literally seconds later, Schumacher passes him, and then like another forty-five seconds later, Schumacher takes the victory. So we're talking like from start to finish, this all happens in like maybe two minutes. Yeah, this escalates quickly. And Schumacher, who was so far back, he thought, you know, I'm out. There's no way. Yeah, I'm in second mm. place today. That's just the way it's going to be. I'm going to baby this car until I until I get to right. the finish. Uh, he ends up with the victory, and it and it's a it's a big one, and it's unforeseen. I think people will notice that's one of the primary deciding things for us when we're picking these last laps. It's the it's the fact that you never really know who's walking away with first place. I know it, and you know what? You want to see the way this plays out? Let's just let's play the audio clip right now. If he can just do this last two and a half miles or so, he is going to have won this race four years in. He's slowing down. He's slowing down, Murray. I thought I heard it rattling as it came past the pits last time. Mika Hacken is slowing right down. Is he out of fuel? Oh, this could be absolutely fantastic. He's got to finish this last lap. Meantime, Michael Schumacher at reduced speed will be closing up on him. And there is Schumacher starting his last lap as Mika Hakkinen tours, tours. Is he going to stop? Is Michael Schumacher in the last knockings of the race as Hakkinen looks down into the cockpit? Sparks coming out of the back of him. I thought I saw a couple of sparks. Yes. So it is a, a pure mechanical problem for Hakkinen then. Not uh, a shortage of fuel. Hakkinen, I do not believe, will get over the finish line. Adrian Newey looking there, bang, the engine's gone, and David Coulthard had the same sort of thing happen this morning in the warm-up, it was a hydraulics problem, and on the very last lap of the Spanish Grand Prix, Michael Schumacher looks as though he's going to go through and take another win, what an incredible situation, it would be his third, and Mika Hakkinen has pulled off, Michael Schumacher has just got to get, there he goes, into the lead. Wow, my goodness, an incredible finish. All right, and so you get an idea. You get a, you get mm-hmm. a good feel for, you know, just the excitement that builds around this. And you can hear the announcers saying, like, you know, it's just kind of the uh, the dismay in their voice. Like, oh, no, what, what's going to happen here? They, they're trying to figure out, like, does he have enough to make it? Can, can Schumacher catch mm-hmm. up? Is he going to catch up? And then eventually you just realize that it's too much. Now, let's go to something else. When we're talking about something unpredictable, Scott, why don't we go to the 2012 2012- can I can I hit you with one more little thing yeah, before this? Because I, I found an interesting little note on the on the F one story oh, revolving okay. or revolving around Mika Hakkinen, which I had I I don't know how this evaded me for so long, but for a very brief time in 1983, uh, Mika Hakkinen and Ayrton Senna were on the same Formula One team. What really? Yeah, they were on the same Formula One team. They were on the Mc- McLaren team. For just it was just a matter of a couple of races, really. And Mika, as it turns out, was a backup driver for Senna. 
at some huh. point during okay. that time. And um, I think that, uh, oh, what happened was, um, oh, it was only for two races at the end of the season mm-hmm. when they were both on the same team, uh, or racing as on the same team, because um, at the end of the Italian Grand Prix, uh, Michael Andretti, who was the other Formula One driver, Michael Andretti tried Formula One for one year and didn't do very well at all. He, yeah. uh, he, uh, he was actually, he retired in 17 out of 13, or sorry, seven out of 13 races. So, um, uh, you know, for various mechanical problems, crashes, whatever it happened to be. Uh, but he, uh, he was dismissed, as they say, after the uh, Italian Grand Prix. And that's when Mika picked up the slack for him. And so Mika Hakkinen and Ayrton Senna were driving on the same team for two races before Ayrton left to go to the Williams team in, 80, uh, okay. in 84. So, uh, or I'm sorry, 94. So, uh, that was, that was a big deal. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of cool to have the, the two, I mean, two people that were clearly, I mean, they ended up being top of their, you know. Right, right, top of the field. Yeah. But that's, that's strange because historically it's fascinating because you don't really, I don't know, I don't really think of, the legendary names as people who hang out and meet each other. You know what I mean? Yeah, usually they're involved with, usually they're on separate teams. Usually. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Typically they're competitors that, that are, you know, against one another. They're not, you know, necessarily sharing garage space. And, you know, maybe that's why Hawkins was around for the full 83 season, I believe, but he was just a backup driver at that point. He wasn't, he wasn't the main drive, one of the main drivers. So and just an interesting footnote, uh, you know, historical footnote that I thought people should, should notice. Cause, uh, um, and I, I may have said 83 back in there. I meant 93, obviously uh, the 93 you, season. Yeah. Okay. You All corrected. Right. Okay, good. <laughs> so uh, wait, I hate to interrupt. What's that? All right, man, I got some bad news. You know, this was supposed to be our easy podcast this week. It is easy. Well, yeah, it is easy, but that's the problem. We're having too much fun. This this was also supposed to be our short podcast. Oh, I see your point here. So we're uh, we're running a little bit long. So maybe, you know what, we can break this up into two parts. How about that? You, you know what? Agreed. Because uh, just for our listeners, uh, just so you guys know, every time that we tell ourselves we're going to have a short podcast, we jinx ourselves. And it looks like it happened again. So we're going to go ahead and make this a two-parter. Tune in to hear the second part of our series on Famous Last Laps. In the meanwhile, drop us a line on Facebook, give us a holler at Twitter, or send us an email at carstuff at discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at howstuffworks.com. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. So should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? 
Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander. Or we could do something in between like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly how much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero.